Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Monday, January 17th, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 23rd episode is Robert Evan Ellis, speaking to us today from Greater Washington, D.C. You can find Dr. Ellis's bio on the EconView website as well. He's a research professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute with a focus on the region's relationships with China and other non-Western hemisphere actors. Dr. Ellis has published over 130 works and counting, including several books, China in Latin America, The What's and Wherefores in 2009, in 2013, The Strategic Dimension of Chinese Engagement with Latin America, and in 2014, China on the Ground in Latin America. He's an amazingly prolific writer, and during our conversation, I'm going to try to touch on a few of his most recent articles. I counted 10 in the last two months alone on a wide variety of economic security issues, primarily centered on Central and South America and China's growing influence in the region. Evan, welcome to the Hale Report. Thank you, Lurk. It's a real pleasure to be uh, here with you today. Thank you. I was trying to remember when I first met you. So I looked back in my emails, and it was at the University of Chicago back in May of 2014, you were giving a talk on an issue that not many people were thinking about then, but which is front and center of, the, of China's policy uh, agenda right now, uh, China's food, secu- food security. And you spoke about soybeans coming from Latin America and the issues with water allocation all over the world. Um, and I just read today that China has, is now going to be allowing genetically modified soybeans. So we've come full circle, I think, from when we first met. No, absolutely. I remember that. And I think uh, as we look at what China's uh, strategic objectives are globally uh, and including in Latin America and the Caribbean, um, you know, Oftentimes, it does include not only uh, secure access to commodities to make the Chinese economy run and access to markets and associated technologies, but also uh, access to food or at least inputs for food to feed the 1.4 billion Chinese people. As we talked about back then, um, even uh, to the extent that China has uh, limited amounts of arable land, it has even more uh, constraints in other areas, such as the the water to actually uh, produce those agricultural goods. And so it continues to be something that China struggles with, and, and those struggles drive uh, Chinese uh, organizations such as uh, China uh, Oil Seeds and, and Foodstuffs Corporation or, or COFCO to uh, reach out uh, through agro-logistics firms uh, such as Nadera and Noble in, in Latin America and elsewhere looking for not only uh, secure access to uh, production of, of food and inputs like like soybeans, but also technologies like GMO seeds, which they acquired through, through Nadera and a range of, of other things. And so uh, that is one of those dimensions that oftentimes uh, gets... Uh, uh, not as much as attention as it should. Hmm. 
Thank you. Well, Evan, I always ask my guests how they became interested in their life's work. How did you get involved in this very interesting nexus between China and Latin America? Well, I had actually worked about 14 years in the private sector, uh, largely in support of Department of Defense uh, contracts. But uh, I happened to be following uh, some some uh, tendencies in South America and was in Talca, Chile back in 2004 when uh, just to the north uh, in Santiago, Hu Jintao came to be part of the uh, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum Summit uh, then being held there. And I was struck by the extent to which the message of China in the region really had a lot of resonance in in Argentina and in Chile and in Brazil, uh, which had been receiving very little uh, investment from the West and relatively little attention from the West, uh, largely because that attention was focused on Asian markets at the time. And so as I began to follow this, uh, realizing that there's something important going on here, I had the fortune to uh, write some of the early uh, works on what China was doing in the region, as well as uh, having the opportunity to uh, do a teaching stint at the University of Miami uh, and uh, writing one of the first books in the region. And so uh, it opened a lot of doors uh, for me, and um, you know that led me to government service and to what has really been uh, almost 20 years now of, of, of writing on it. Um, and so for me, it's been fascinating, not only uh, my my gratitude at, at the people that uh, have opened doors for me over the years and that I've had the opportunity to to interact with on the topic, but also realizing the, the overlap between what are economic issues, what are security issues, uh, issues between uh, you know sectors such as finance versus uh, commerce versus investment, and, and frankly, um, some of the ways in which uh, both the Chinese activity and the understanding of it, both in Latin America and the U.S., have really evolved during that time. In many ways, have become mature and have gotten past some of the initial, uh, either China is the, the the dragon that's going to eat us all up, or China is the lovable panda that's going to rescue us from defend, dependence on the nefarious West. And so I think we're in a much more complex space right now, and that space continues to evolve, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic and the region's response to it. All right. Just another coincidence. I was at that APEC meeting in Santiago and there was zero discussion of what you're talking about. Those That was just maybe the, the first time that people began to even think about that. And also at that time, nobody, I don't think, envisioned the Belt and Road Initiative and what that has become. And that's something that you've written extensively about. In the last three weeks, Cuba, Nicaragua and Syria, interestingly, have joined the Belt and Road. And I think that many people imagine that the BRI is primarily focused on Eurasia and the old silk world, but that's not true. Africa and even Europe are on the BRI roadmap. Uh, Now, and even our close neighbor now, uh, just in this year, has joined Cuba. What do you think of the BRI? And do you believe the emerging weakness in China's economy that I follow uh, will stymie its growth? What's interesting, Lurk, you raised two interesting points. Uh, number one is is the way in which uh, the BRI and other parts of China's rhetoric has uh, been part of China's own understanding of, of its history and how it wants to represent itself to, to the world. And so um, part of China's concept has long been of, of a central power relating to the rest of the world in ways which are culturally or economically beneficial. And so um, with the new confidence of uh, the then new administration, 
administration of Xi Jinping, you had this attempt to say, well, how do we explain this desire for investment and to have secure access to commodities and food stuff, but also cultural things? And so in 2013, as, as you know well, you had the coining of, of the BRI. Originally, they wrestled, well, you know, should it be called the One Belt, One Road, or does that imply that, uh, you know, something too exclusive? Um, and of course, over time, you've had the evolution to things like the, the digital Silk Road and other things that have become coined. And as you also alluded to, initially that was uh, focused on what was the traditional space for China's connection to the rest of the world, which is the old Silk Route and, and the connection to Europe across Central Asia and elsewhere uh, and, and the maritime component of that. But as China realized that it was now existing in a far more globalized economy with far more distant lines of supply, and especially with the 2017 change in diplomatic recognition of, of Panama from Taiwan to the, to the PRC, this idea of Latin America also wants to plug itself into what it perceives as the big Chinese money machine, uh, getting preferential access to loans and perhaps infrastructure projects. And so, um, you know, once you saw that uh, ability of Panama to sign up, then in very rapid succession, you had a total of, of 19 uh, countries, including countries in the Caribbean that never historically had been part of that pattern. Um, and then, of course, uh, the uh, the stalling of that for a while, but more recently, again, as you alluded to, uh, Nicaragua with its change in diplomatic recognition to uh, the PRC on, on the 10th, uh, Cuba most recently, and the one that is probably going to be the big next step is um, with the expected uh, 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 state visit uh, by the, the president of Argentina to China probably uh, February next month. It's expected that Argentina will then become uh, member number 22 of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, now, with respect to where this is going, uh, you raise an interesting point that um, with some of the difficulties in the global economy, combined with a sense that maybe China has allowed some of its companies to over leverage themselves and some of the concerns that have been particularly raised with, for example, the $300 billion uh, ongoing um, uh, bankruptcy of, of Evergrande and others, that that trying to rein in some of those uh, large, oftentimes not economically well-conceived projects has limited China's willingness to to extend credit, uh, especially with you know almost a trillion dollars of commitments, many non-performing loans with some of the Belt and Road projects across Central Asia and elsewhere. Um, I think you're seeing a slowing down of that, but I don't think it's gone away by any means. And, and certainly, um, you know, with President Xi now poised to uh, launch into his unprecedented third term, I think you're going to continue to see Belt and Road carry on as an investment tool um, and as a way that China explains its, its relationship to, to the rest of the world. But um, there is certainly a bit of a hiccup with uh, the debt situation that China has and some of the, the political pushback in, in China with respect to some of its companies. Right. What I wonder, I guess my underlying question is, uh, could China be creating a kind of necklace of debt contagion around the world that if China has difficulties in some of these other country emerging markets as well, um, we've seen some of the debt repayment issues that have come up and uh, it's not very, the, the loans are not very transparent. So we really don't know what's in those loans and what the conditions are. So it seems to me that it's a concern in terms of financial stability. I would absolutely agree. Um, although I think, uh, so in some ways, the nature of the, the the debt problem with China has been mischaracterized by by some, especially with an excess of emphasis on the unique case of Sri Lanka and the port of Hanbantota. Right. But um, there was an excellent report that was done about uh, a year 
ago uh, by an organization using USAID data. I believe it was through Vanderbilt University, uh, focused on the uh, really in-depth analysis of 100 Chinese uh, debt contracts. And one of the things that shows that you alluded to was that not only the use of things that lock countries in, like cross-default clauses, but also uh, clauses which prevent the debtors from uh, talking about the nature of, of their debt in some ways keeps some of that indebtedness, especially when there are sovereign guarantees uh, off of the books. And so it undercounts the leverage, the, the nature of the debt. Another problem that's cropped up is, frankly, China's reluctance to write down debt in some of the ways that organizations such as the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank have. This, in, in a small sense, was a problem for example, with uh, the small uh, nation of, of Suriname, which uh, was looking for a $590 million uh, debt, uh, uh, a new uh, debt from the IMF in order to write down some of its old debts. But it ran into problems because Suriname couldn't get the Chinese to write down about a billion dollars of debt that they'd incurred going all the way back to Jules Wittenbosch back, back in 2004. And so, you know, China insists on getting paid. It's not always apparent how much money is actually owed to the Chinese. And I think especially in some of the nations, we can talk about Montenegro and and, and Eastern Europe and elsewhere, where you have these these difficult um, debts for projects that are not giving adequate economic returns. It, It really creates a problem, but a problem whose ability to resolve is is a lot different than it was back in the days when you you know started getting into the you know the IMF debt negotiation. So I think we're in very new territory and I think new territory that's been both accentuated by the the current um you know COVID-19 uh, fiscal pressures and I think in some ways will raise new um international relations pressures as countries begin to feel that uh, dealing with over-indebtedness to China isn't the same as the previous generation of of dealing with over-indebtedness to international institutions like the IMF. Yeah, it seems that there's a lack of institutional coordination um, should things go in any kind of negative way, that there really isn't a way to solve these problems that's predetermined. So that's the financial risk for sure. But um, what about the strategic, the overall strategic risk? You know, thinking about Cuba so close to us. And I think, by the way, if I remember my elementary school history, I think that when Christopher Columbus landed on Cuba, he thought it was China <laughs> originally. So how how does this doesn't seem to be having much resonance, um, especially in the media in the United States, that this could be an issue the amount of Chinese influence that and how it's been growing. Um, you know, 18 countries have joined since 2018, um, just 2018. Um, and maybe without COVID, that would have been more. Uh, but the BRI itself, uh, one quote I, that you made that I thought was really terrific and explanatory was, the BRI is not in the common sense a binding agreement a concrete program or an organization. Rather, it's a concept through which the PRC advances a narrative linking its expanding engagement with the world. How do you, uh, so how do we deal strategically with this concept? 
That's a great point. And actually, to to start out with with one of the the last parts of, of that, um, it is interesting to me that uh, China is looking for how to present its engagement to the world in a way that is seen as a win win, mutually beneficial, non non threatening. And so, um, in many ways, it is dealing with hopes and aspirations that cannot be uh, completely fulfilled. Having said that, when you talk about the nature of the strategic challenge, um, one of the interesting things is many try to quickly make the analogy to the Cold War and, and the Soviet Union. But for me, the interesting thing is that the nature of Soviet engagement was far more recognizable to us in, in the West. It was about advancing a global ideology which was in competition with our own global ideology of, of democracy and free markets. In some ways, it was about a military and economic, uh, or I should say military uh, and um, political initiative uh, in a world that was much less interdependent than the one that we have today. And so what happens with China is that in many ways, for me, China is pursuing its strategic economic interests and is relatively agnostic about whether you have a communist regime or a free market regime, as long as it is acknowledging core interests of the PRC and giving favorable treatment to Chinese companies and, and allowing China to get some of those strategic goods, the, the access to markets and foodstuffs and, and supply that, that it needs. Um, but in that context, what you find is that um, states which are less well institutionalized, which are generally populist anti-U.S. states, provide a lot of benefit to the Chinese. Uh, so you see this with uh, the Hugo Chavez regime in, in Venezuela, now Nicolas Maduro. You saw it with Rafael Correa in Ecuador. You saw it especially with Evo Morales in, in Bolivia, continuing with the new Arce government there. And you see it uh, to a lesser extent, but importantly, in Argentina with um, uh, Cristina Fernandez uh, de Kirchner, now vice president, but still occupying an important role there. And really, as other parts of Latin America uh, turn more towards the left or populist regimes. You see everything from you know, the interest in you know, the left of center, uh, Pedro Castillo in Peru, uh, as well as the right of center authoritarian, Nayib Bukele. But what happens is that China, in pursuing its own strategic economic interests, inadvertently act as an incubator of populism. In other words, um, as those states try to consolidate their power as they uh, input new constitutions, as uh, they try to put their own people in judicial organs, as, as they bend the rules of the game, as they move against the private sector. In previous eras, uh, there was a very effective response, which was pressure from Western institutions and capital flight and things like that, that often acted in a corrective fashion in preventing that those left-to-center solutions or populist solutions from, from going too far, or at least bringing countries back. However, today, what um, what is happening is that uh, China is available as an alternative source of income as that occurs. And so as long as the Chinese companies are treated well and they are repaid, um, you know, those populists are, are free to to ride roughshod on Western investors in Western countries. We saw this in, in Venezuela, which means at the end of the day, you have more countries uh, having the survival and consolidation of populism. And that 
those regimes then are able to deal more deeply with the Chinese. And frankly, the Chinese get better deals from those type of populists because they're more in need from Chinese investment because they've burned their bridges with the West. Uh, they tend to have politicized institutions which are less effective in, in dealing with uh, very sophisticated Chinese bureaucracies. They um, you know, have this idea of the goodness of dealing at a state-to-state -state level in the ways that the Chinese companies are, are good with. And so at the end of the day, the win-win the is a consolidation of essentially authoritarian, uh, oftentimes leftist populist states in Latin America and elsewhere, um, while China gets better access and, and strategic relationships. But the strategic risk is that leads the United States, that leads us to a region which is ever more authoritarian and, and, and less amenable to cooperate with the United States than, than what we had before. Well, um, your latest paper, uh, Preparing for the Deterioration of the Latin American and Caribbean Strategic Environment, is to say the very least quite sobering. And just to quote the, the very beginning of it, um, although the outcome is not inevitable, Latin America and the Caribbean are currently on the precipice of a downward spiral into populist authoritarian governments, which you were just describing, Evan, economic collapse, social unrest, and expanded presence and influence of China across the hemisphere. And it does not look like the cavalry is coming to turn the situation around. Although those dynamics are just now becoming clear, numerous reinforcing dynamics are driving the strategic environment of the region into a very troubling direction. For the moment, the skies of the region are mostly clear, but the storm is coming. So what are those, those self-reinforcing dynamic relationships, Evan? How would you um, uh, describe them? This is a great question, and uh, for me, there are three groups of, of reinforcing dynamics. Um, obviously, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, you had uh, frustration with endemic corruption um, and inequality and uh, uh, basically limited development in the region. But COVID-19 created a lot of pressures. It accentuated attention to the frustrations over corruption. It accentuated uh, attention to poor government performance. It dramatically worsened uh, fiscal balances because many of the nations in the region had a, a five to 10 percentage point jump in debt as a fraction of GDP, which has led to the postponement of a range of, of different programs um, post-COVID, even though the countries are still continuing to deal with COVID. Uh, you have um, really a, about a 10 percentage point loss of GDP growth, basically a, another lost decade, which means uh, many Latin Americans were pushed out of the middle class into the informal sectors or at least into more marginalized uh, situations, which increases also pressure on, on, on poverty, on organized crime. Um, and as we've seen, um, some of the, the social forces that were beginning even before COVID, the frustrations that led to significant protests in, in Chile and in Ecuador and October 2019 have been accentuated. And so on the one hand, all of these pressures tend to push the region in a more difficult direction. But as we just talked about, um, because you have this availability of, of China uh, and China basically as a supplier of um, alternative capital, as a supplier of alternative um, you know, investment, as a, a country that uh, also is, is an important purchaser of Latin American commodities, whether it's uh, you know, Argentine uh, you know, pork and, and soy or, or Brazilian meats or El Salvadorian uh, sugar or Ecuadorian shrimp, et cetera, et cetera. That gives China more leverage. Um, just as we saw in 
um, in the post-crisis uh, period in 2008, uh, usually about a year to two years after the crisis when things begin to settle out, you have uh, – U.S. and European-based companies looking to sell off their poorly performing assets uh, in markets farther away. Um, and so, um, you know, that sell-off, Latin America continues to be a poorly performing market. And so um, the risk is that once again, post-COVID this year, and especially accelerating in 2023, I, I would expect to see a lot of M&A uh, activities uh, in which, um, you know, U.S. and European companies are, are selling off and the Chinese are doing the buying in sectors that they have prioritized, whether it's um, in, in mining or strategic technologies or electricity generation or transmission, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, China able to to increase its stake. And, and as you pointed out, um, the political momentum also means that those populist governments are becoming, um, you know, Latin America is increasingly turning to the left and the populist left, and those um, movements are, are surviving. And there's various different types. So as we've already seen, you have the consolidation of already authoritarian populist regimes in, in Venezuela with, with Maduro in the latest elections, um, the continuation, of course, of, of the Diaz-Canal regime in Cuba. Uh, you have the return of the left in, in places that briefly had an opening, uh, in, including uh, uh, the return of the Mas in Bolivia, the return of the Peronists and, and the push towards the more radical left wing of the Peronists in, in Argentina with uh, Cristina Fernandez. Uh, you have the basically the return of the, the countryside in, in Peru with a relatively uh, politically inexperienced uh, uh, Pedro Castillo, but with the Cuban-trained Vladimir Sharon and, and certain uh, darker forces behind him. Uh, you have in, in Chile the prospect of, of the newly elected uh, Gabriel Boric uh, with some very expensive investor unfriendly policies that he's uh, strongly committed to. Uh, you have in Honduras the you know, newly elected Xiomara Castro regime there. In, in Mexico, you have the, the increasingly turn to the left, both in foreign policy and to a certain degree uh, turn away from the market by Andres Manuel López Obrador, especially in his policies towards a kind of a statist version of the oil sector with Pemex and a statist version of the electricity sector with, with with the CFE. And so on balance, all of those things, which are in part fueled by COVID and in part uh, lead to a even more of a turn to China, also lead you down that spiral of um, investor, uh, basically pushing away Western investors, a certain amount of capital flight, a certain amount of increasing statism. And so all of those things tend to propel the others. And what that gets you at the end of the day is regimes that are less cooperative towards the United States, um, less investor friendly, uh, basically with greater conditions of, of poverty and, and need. And so, you know, at the end of the day, the question becomes, what should we do in the United States? And historically, we've tried to say, oh, Latin America has problems, and so we need to sprinkle a little bit more investment. And and, um, and what I tried to say with, with that article is that if we're realistic, the tools that the United States has with Development Finance Corporation or with USAID or with other things um, are not only insufficient, but it is probably politically unrealistic for us to be able to come right. to the rescue that needed. That's right. And if you say then, you know, we have to be realistic, this is not going to happen, then that leads you to say we need to prepare for things to be getting a lot worse, which means that you have strategies of, of how you deal with when you have a region where you don't have as much access in multilateral domains, um, where you don't have as much leverage in, in, in investment and transparency and, and things like that. How do you prepare for that? And it implies a shift in your strategic posture. But to make that shift, you have to first recognize that you know you're not going to be able to fix this. 
And if you say you can't fix it, then you have to plan for what not being able to fix it implies. And I think that's mm-hmm. where, sadly, we have to be at as a country right now. Right. Realistic. So, in fact, uh, uh, one thing you said really sh- shocked me. Only three countries in Latin America, you feel, are willing to work with the United States. And one of them is IFI, Ecuador, and Paraguay and Uruguay. And that's it. Um so before I wanted to ask some questions about specific countries, but before we do that, Latin America is not a country, but in some ways, in terms of its telecommunications network and their interlinkages, it is. And how would you describe how telecommunications has perhaps reinforced China's influence in the area? And is that something that we could do more of, given our abilities in that area? It's a great question, and it's really beyond even just telecommunications, but a wave of, of different types of, of information technology that have to do with connectivity, surveillance, uh, data communication, finance. And Latin America actually is not as bad in these areas as many people assume, um, but one of the issues is that so much of the architecture uh, these days uh, is directly or indirectly Chinese. Um, They have become a a relatively low-cost, credible provider, not just with 5G, which is is right now seeing a number of different spectrum options, but also with with 4G and and things prior to that. Um, And oftentimes, it's not just Huawei working directly with the government telecommunication agencies, but it's working as a provider with entities like like Claro, Tigo, Movistar, or or, or others. Uh, In in addition, you have um, a role of Huawei for example, Huawei Marine Systems um, in carrying some of the fiber optic uh, links. Uh, under you know, undersea uh, cables, in other words. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And it goes even farther to, if you talk about, uh, for example, surveillance architectures um, such as we see with ECU-911 in Ecuador or BOL-110 in, in Bolivia or um, a, some new capabilities that were installed by Huawei um, in, in the city of, of Cologne and, and elsewhere. And, and those continue to expand. Or frankly, in e-commerce. It was interesting to me to look at, for example, the rideshare application uh, Didi Chuksung, um, because the Chinese recognized that the data that Didi collected in China was of such sensitivity that the Chinese wanted to ensure that something more friendly to the Chinese Communist Party than, than Didi actually had control over that data in China. If they recognize it in China, they recognize its value elsewhere. And it's amazing that in Latin America, which is maybe news for some of our, our U.S. audience, um, in Latin America, something like half of the market for rideshare is actually Didi, um, with Uber and, and some others having the remainder. So in, in e-commerce, also with companies like, like Alibaba, you have this increasing range of of opportunities for Chinese companies to, to collect data on um, – companies and their intellectual property on Latin American leaders and policymakers. And what we see is the 2017 national security law in China obliges Chinese companies uh, to turn over data if considered of security value to the Chinese state. We've already seen that the Chinese uh, actually openly work with, um, you know, cyber criminals and, and others. This was a case a couple months ago that was well documented and officially charges made by, by the U.S. Justice Department. And so when we already have these well-established practices of the Chinese state using their, their companies to try to grab data, whether commercial data or, or others, um, and recognizing that these architectures that carry intellectual property and carry information that can be used to compromise leaders and decision makers, um, this creates 
enormous opportunities for, for the Chinese to advance, and it really throws the whole idea of sovereign decisions of, of Latin American uh, countries into question, let alone the ability of the United States to uh, cooperate and, and, and have sensitive communications there in, in security and in other domains. So what I've long argued is that, I mean, number one, if there are certain select areas where it's important for us to push back, um, those type of communications and, and technology architectures are one. But when we do that, we need to do so carefully, just like we do in the United States, but we need to supply or, or at least help our partners have commercially viable other choices. So it's not just enough to say, you know, don't include Huawei in your 5G auction. You actually also have to say, well, you know, we're going to work with you to make maybe a alternative Nokia solution commercially viable or an alternative Ericsson solution commercially viable. Because if not, our partners just get frustrated and, and ignore us. Right. So I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, this is an incredible uh, amount of information that we're we're um, hearing. Where can everybody find you? I'm, you were one of the original EconView experts, by the way, Evan. I think right away, um, I think you were on our first roster. So you can find um, a lot of your things on EconView, but also um, can people follow you on Twitter and where else can they find your writing? And do you have an upcoming book, for example? <laughs> Great questions, all, Eric. And, and for me, uh, to be part of EconView from such an early time has been a real honor and, and privilege for me. And, and I enjoy continuing to, to have that that contact with you all. In terms of some of my other social media and, and other connections, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, hashtag uh, R Evan Ellis. Uh, also, I have a, 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 a distro list for all of my articles, uh, always free, on Substack, which is again at R. Evan Ellis with, with the usual uh, Substack e emailing address. Uh, I do have an upcoming book. Actually, it is going to be my fourth uh, full-length book on China, Latin America, looking at exactly these things, looking at these issues of how uh, China, through its policy of, of uh, pursuing connectivity through Belt and Road, uh, impacting the political infrastructure of the region, impacting the strategic dynamics of, of Taiwan, uh, doing military engagement, how this all comes together for China to pursue its goal to to really achieve its national development goals and, and its security goals. Uh, that's coming out through Palgrave uh, probably in the middle of, of this year, 2022. Uh, so um, anyone who's interested in that, uh, I certainly uh, welcome your, your interest in, in reaching out uh, with respect to the book. Okay, we'll definitely do a review of your book and maybe have you back afterwards. That would be great. Be so, so to continue on, so we've got China, the U.S. What about Russia? Is Russia a player in Latin America at all? It's a great question. And certainly with the threats most recently made by the deputy foreign minister uh, talking about possibly deploying Russian military assets in Venezuela and, and Cuba this past week, uh, the notion of, of Russia's relationship has, again, come front and center. In economic terms, Russia is nowhere on the level of, of China's presence. Uh, Russia uh, really has a little bit of economic projection in a limited number of areas. You have um, some oil activity through, of course, Rosneft and Gazprom and, and Luke Oil and, and, and TNK, among others. You have some mining presence through Rusal. You have a little bit of construction presence through, through Interau. You have Russia as a purchaser of some importance of, of beef and, and grains and others from countries like Argentina and, and Paraguay. But really, as I often say, um, Latin American elites do not dream of access to Russian markets uh, like they do with, with the Chinese. Uh, Russian engagement has 
largely focused on hostile anti-U.S. states, most recently Venezuela, to a lesser degree Nicaragua, um, Cuba, although the relationship with Cuba is is difficult. Uh, Russia's level of resources to loan for for projects and prop up its allies has has been limited. So the big thing that you've seen is that Russia, Russia more than anything, has sought to use Latin America on the cheap to threaten the United States in its own near abroad to gain space for itself in its near abroad. So back in 2008, when Russia wanted to uh, push back against uh, uh, the U.S. naval presence in the Black Sea during the the Georgia uh, uh, crisis with the breakaway republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, Russia sent two uh, backfire bombers uh, to to fly around the Caribbean and and land in Venezuela, and and later um, it it sent a, a, a a group of naval assets around the, the cruiser Peter the Great. Uh, again, um, very little actually happened from that. But again, when things were heating up in, in the Ukraine in 2013, 2014, the Russians sent forces again, uh, again in 2018, 2019. Um, a lot of times the threats have been very empty um, and the current threats are, are also pretty hollow in terms of Russia's ability to uh, back up with a meaningful military presence. Um, and it's also dubious whether Russia actually wants to incur the the serious costs of an extended military projection. Like Afghanistan. Yeah. I don't think Putin wants to go there. Exactly. But but they are of concern. Of course, uh, you know, other countries uh, such as Iran in, in the same way um, you know, have been of concern, especially through a limited number of conduits uh, such as the, the Maduro regime in, in Venezuela and, and especially the new Iranian regime of, of President Raisi, um, which, again, uh, with with the end of the uh, JPCOA um, negotiations or, 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 or agreements um, and the hostilities with the United States has had every incentive to work with like minded actors such as the Maduro regime. But again, at the end of the day, uh, the interesting thing is there's a dangerous complementarity because um, actors like Russia and Venezuela have very little to lose because of their economic stakes in the region and and everything to gain by essentially setting the barn on fire. Um, China benefits from those type of things, especially to the extent that they can quietly sit back and, and, and not be associated with those things. And yet it's actually Chinese money far more than anything that the Russians or Iranians have done, which have been the key to strategically maintaining the life of those types of regimes, whether it was all the way back to Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela or Rafael Correa in Ecuador or Evo Morales in Bolivia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, things that the Russians or the Iranians could have never done on, on their own. And so there's a mutual benefit, even while um, there's probably limited coordination. But it for the United States and in the region, that synergy creates some you know, serious strategic problems, especially in the context of what we're seeing right now with where the region is going with, with populism, um, because that opens up even more doors for these type of threatening behaviors. Now, um, another subject that fascinates me and also um, many of our listeners I've found is cryptocurrencies. And El Salvador now allows Bitcoin, uh, has allowed it as an official currency, Yet at the same time, their port project and the stadium is financed by Chinese money, and China is definitely uh, hostile to decentralized cryptocurrencies. What's going on in El Salvador? That's a great question. And at one level, it illustrates the ways in which uh, some of the authoritarian friends that China 
finds it useful to associate with, uh, sometimes do things that are not entirely consistent with China's own strategic interest. And so it's always trying to play those balancing act. And, and certainly um, with China, um, the Bukele regime um, and the option to uh, have access to a big port complex in, in La Union and in a place that has traditionally been close to the United States, that's that's a wonderful opportunity. But you're absolutely right um, You know, with a, with a uh, the idea of this Bitcoin city. Um, at, not, it, it's a wonderful opportunity for organized crime um, if you're looking at a way to anonymously launder money. And that raises a lot of concern given that the Salvadoran economy is already dollarized. And so in, in many ways, that's a you know, that's an opportunity. Substantially, it's more hype than anything. Um, I, I one of my one of my sons, Anthony, who actually uh, works uh, in the um, information technology sector, constantly reminds me that Ethereum and not Bitcoin is actually the the way to go. Um, so um, <laughs> I will. I'm on the other end of that. So <laughs> love to have a conversation with Anthony. <laughs> But, but, but it, it raises, they raise they, they but it does raise issues. It shows that the balance that China has to walk and in the ways in which. Um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, you know, producing you know, spending a lot of energy to produce something of value by by mining free energy out of out of uh, you know you know geothermal from a volcano is. Um, you you can you can think of all kinds of other crazy ways to you know, use use a nation's resources without push, producing anything of value. But I think it's. It'll, it'll create some dilemmas for the, the Chinese, and I, I suspect that the Chinese probably would prefer to uh, um, you know, rain Bukele in. But uh, as you also recognize, that the Chinese also have their own uh, you know, state-backed uh, digital renminbi that receives you know, probably not as much attention as it should, even though I understand mm-hmm. that that's been delayed. And uh, that actually worries me far more than uh, Bukele's project in, in the volcano. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned... Uh, it's important to be realistic. And I think in the United States, there's very little will to political will to engage anywhere outside the United States, practically. Um, so you have that current. And then also it's, it's very likely that interest rates will rise in the United States and that that will have a follow on effect on all emerging country debts. Um, how do you see that playing out? If suddenly um, interest rates here the, the Fed is, in fact, the central banker for the world, not just the United States. Do you anticipate defaults um, because of that and because of this lack of international cooperation and the, what you described, the cross-cancelable um, contracts that there are? Um, do you think that we're reaching a, uh, some kind of uh, tipping point potentially in 2022 with Latin American debt again? And how would that play out? And how would that affect U.S. businesses there? It's a great question. Um, My sense is, um, in general, Latin American debt loads are not currently as excessive as in some other parts of the world. And so um, I'm not as worried specifically about Latin American debt in general, although I think there are certain countries where the implications of of debt politically and, and otherwise could be important. Uh, certainly one of those right now is um, in Argentina, where literally within about a month, you're going to have some very difficult IMF repayments coming due. And if they do not uh, 
come up with a, a solution. They seem to be playing hardball right now with the IMF. You know, that could push them once again into a technical default. That could push them once again towards looking for a Chinese solution. But you also allude, I think, rightly to this cascading effect. And so on the one hand, you have exactly that risk to the global economy with, you know, these, you know, on top of everything else, the, the pressures to to nearshoring, um, the continuation of the global uh, logistics bottlenecks, um, you know, some credit crunches, uh, certainly the the over leveraged condition of, of Chinese uh, cities and and uh, you know Chinese uh, SOEs uh, and again you know companies like Evergrande really highlighting that you know the question of you know whether you know that debt crisis in you know the United States and the rest of the world will will also you know push China over the edge. I, I think China is walking a, a tightrope just like it did back in the 2008 uh, crisis, um, and it has a lot of, of instruments. And I often think it is not quite as, as fragile from a state control perspective as we like to think. I think we oftentimes underestimate the capacity of, of China to at least politically hold things together by implementing very, very things that are very painful for their citizens and and companies. Now, on the other hand, uh, one of the things that I also worry about strategically is that uh, one of China's long-term efforts has been to essentially dethrone the dollar as the reserve currency of, of choice. And so to the extent that uh, this pushes the world in, in that direction, um, especially augmented by, you know, by, by a China holding itself together, you know, this in some ways if China can weather the storm, I think it could in some ways be strategically beneficial. And so in that space, the you have another type of cascade, which is that if the U.S. government begins to lose in any significant way its status as having the dollar as reserve currency and begins to see problems in our ability to do to continue with our infinite borrowing, then, um, you know, you have some very, very serious questions about, um, you know, how the United States government continues to do business in, in, in the same way. And so I think we are at a tipping point, but the way it plays out and, you know, essentially who winds up on top and, and who goes down, I think will be very, very complicated in the, in the next year or so. Okay. Now you said that you're going to be talking about, we can't leave Taiwan on the table. Uh, you said that you're going to be talking about this in your book. Um, uh, recently, I think Nicaragua switched to recognizing the PRC what are your views on the role of Taiwan and this this rivalry um, in Latin America? Do you think that it's an important discussion to have? I, I think absolutely. Right now, probably the most significant risk of a, a major military conflict between the United States and, and China um, involving others, whether uh, Japan and Australia, of course, with their new collaboration and others, is precisely over Taiwan, as it relates, of course, to everything else with the militarization of the South and East China Sea by, by China, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Xi Jinping has, has indicated his desire to incorporate uh, Taiwan before the end of his third term in 2026. And uh, certainly you see the ever greater military superiority of, of, of the PRC, although uh, the continuing desire of, of the PRC to incorporate Taiwan without going to, to a war. But there's always the possibility of miscalculation in that. And so diplomatically, what I worry about, and if you look at other classic cases, I mean, how China treated um, Hong Kong or even cases like the you know, Indian state of Goa, um, that for the PRC, as the number of states that diplomatically recognize Taiwan goes to zero, the temptation in the coming years to take advantage of the military superiority and, and force a solution 
go up and up. And so every state that Taiwan loses from me is strategically destabilizing. And in Latin America, clearly with Nicaragua's flip and the promise of Xiomara Castro in Honduras of also flipping, we move um, basically to the new center of gravity of, of the states in the Caribbean. And so the remaining states in the hemisphere, uh, Paraguay is probably not going to flip um, until uh, Mario um, Abdul Benitez uh, leaves power in, I believe, 2023. But um, the rest of the states are in, are in the Caribbean. You have Haiti, which is facing a, a political uh, transition sometime soon. You have um, the, the government of Belize. Uh, the Briseño uh, PUP government, uh, which uh, has had certain signals uh, about uh, the, the PRC. You have uh, St. Lucia, which whose current government previously recognized the PRC. And then you have the Citizenship for Investment uh, countries, St. Kitts and Nevis and, and St. Vincent and, and the Grenadines. And so you have a, a very susceptible series of, of countries. And once one begins to, to flip, the odds of others beginning to flip also increase. And so, again, as you move down that path, it's not just about diplomacy and China's economic advance through you know non-transparent MOUs and, and things like that. It advances you to a stage where um, you know we could have the PRC acting on Taiwan, you know, militarily or otherwise. Um, in in Asia and and again, um, you know, when I look at at how you know, the prospect of of unleashing a conflict and you know through miscalculation there, I, I see that what's happening diplomatically is is very very important uh, for us in Latin America right now. I see. Okay, so now uh, going to the big picture uh, uh, and how all this integrates together. Do you see? Um, and if I made you, uh, I were president. Evan, and I made you Secretary of State. Um, in your latest paper, you don't only describe the problem, you also have 15 suggestions for things that should be done. And reading through that, I wondered if you were able to do that, would you, um, would you suggest that we create a new Monroe Doctrine for our hemisphere? Do you think that's something that's possible to do, necessary to do? How would you... Um, in a big picture kind of way, what do we need to do as a country for our own security? No, those are great questions. And, and first of all, uh, having served a year and had the great honor of, of uh, being on the policy planning staff of Secretary Pompeo and, and seeing his capability and the dilemmas he wrestled with on, on, on a regular basis, I, I would certainly not want to be Secretary of State. <laughs> and and my, okay. my my hats off to, to, to Secretary Blinken and the rest. It uh, there's there's a lot going on with with the interagency process. Right. Um, but in terms of of the solutions, um, and there are no no easy solutions. But uh, you know, certainly, um, I think uh, multilateralism uh, moves us in in a proper direction. I uh, tend to be someone who believes in in the the continuation of of more resources for Latin America. But I think we also need a new strategic concept of how we uh, work uh, in terms of, of supporting governance and, and, and providing better options um, in addition to resources. Uh, programs, of course, uh, I think like Development Finance Corporation, harnessing the private sector are a step in the, in the right direction. But there are some issues there with some of the limits of, of DFC as, as a tool, especially with higher income uh, countries. I think some of the concept of how we use aid, such as, for example, USAID and the way that we all bring that together is, is oftentimes um, you know, a bit difficult. As I alluded to in the paper, you know, in the face of this turn away from you know democratic pro-US regimes, I think we need to seriously think about you know what our posture in international organizations like the OAS is going to be in, in the next couple of years. I think we need to, to think hard about also um, you know how we 
deal with it, the diminished ability to engage bilaterally. And one of the dilemmas is that we have you know, a half a century or more with the assumption that U.S. economic leverage and, and others allows us to dictate or, or pressure our, our friends in the region on issues such as human rights and democracy. And once we can no longer do that, I think we have to rethink um, to what degree is it good to apply pressure that can be counterproductive in, in driving them in, into the camp of, you know, more serious behaviors with, you know, with rivals such as, such as the Chinese. So I think we need to think about these. I think there is at a core focusing on governance certainly is is the key. Helping our partners in the region um, to make better choices on the front end about um, you know selecting you know who they bring in for for major contracts, uh, doing a better job with the the evaluation of competitive bids, pushing for transparency, which which keeps the, the dirty deals between um, you know between uh, rival corporate elites and 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 their government counterparts in the region from, you know, basically taking the people's money and giving the people nothing, enforcing laws on the back end, selectively pushing back in certain areas like we talked about here today, like um, like telecommunications to, to make sure that things don't happen that, that put our partner sovereignty in jeopardy. And I think a better job with public affairs and, and strategic communications and, and having better data-driven communications about what the real risks are. I mean, that was one of the things I loved about the 100 debt contracts because it sets it up pretty clearly. Not the United States doesn't want you to do this because we think China's bad, but rather, you know, this is how your country can get taken to the cleaners and, and here's the evidence of, of where it's been happening. So, you know, there are no good solutions, but I think we need to prepare for the worst and, and work to be better partners and, and build around you know, governance is really kind of the, the core of a new strategic concept for the you know for for this new century, so uh, real uh, real politics is what you're talking about, and achievable goals, but compassionate real politics. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we have to make our Latin American partners um, understand that we are absolutely sincere, that we are connected to this region by ties of, of family and geography and investment and, and trade, and so we do have a stake in what happens in, in the region, and we do sincerely want to make this region more prosperous and, and better governed. And in that context, that what we are trying to do is to help them succeed for our own interest is, is, as well as theirs. And, and so, you know, it's not just, you know, balance of power and pushing it back against China, Russia, but it's a strategic concept that the best way to secure our interest is to think smartly, but to do so um, in a way that, that builds up the region and their capacity to, to show that, you know, democracy works, free markets work, because if we don't help them to show that those work, then, you know, then all is, 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 is truly lost. Hmm. Evan, thank you for joining us today on the Hale Report. I've been speaking with Evan Ellis, a research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College of Strategic Studies, and also, um, the author of numerous papers. We'll be listing them uh, along with the podcast when it's published on Substack. And I would also encourage you to uh, subscribe to Evan's Substack uh, too. Um, I certainly do. And uh, this is, uh, I think you've brought to light um, some information and a region and your knowledge to uh, an area that has been, I think, um, underrepresented in discussions in the media particularly. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your analysis and your obviously very deep knowledge of of the region. Also, thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast 
with Elizabeth Economy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Elizabeth.